Welcome to another edition of Soul Insight Podcast. First, do no harm. In the background, you may hear there's a lot of wind. Where I am on the planet, we have some very, very high winds today and lots of fires. And I, I've been in prayer, actually, a lot of the morning, praying for all the firefighters, all the animals, all the people that have had to evacuate their homes, all of those who are affected by the smoke. So much has been happening, and it's been hard for me to be consistent with podcasts at this point. There's been a lot of confusion, not just in my life, but in so many people's lives. And although some say that things are, quote, getting back to normal, I don't know if we'll ever go back to normal. The last week, there was an announcement that Elon Musk bought Twitter $44 billion. And it's so fascinating how the media, both independent and corporate media, take this on. And, well, I'd say it's also just another way of diverting us. Now everyone says either side, the left or the right, which is very much socially designed. In some of the other previous podcasts, I've spoken about this two-party socially designed paradigm, which is really all set up to divide and conquer. Because those who are a part of the elite, they don't necessarily have political parties, but they do have interests in control and making fortunes off a large amount of the human population on this planet. Well, I did a little math what it would be like if we take those $44 billion, supposedly for free speech, $44 billion divided by 332 million that currently exist in the United States, that would be $132,000 for each American. Now, I currently live in a state that has very high rates of poverty, and I wonder what would that money do for so many children and people who work really hard but are paid wages that haven't actually changed in about 25 years. I also was looking at how much our current government is giving to the certain wars that are happening. I'm going to be very careful about what I say due to the censorship, but I'll just say that we are paying for a war, which has also been very much socially designed. It's clear to me by the virtue signaling and the labeling uh, that people have bought what the mainstream media and even some alternative media is saying. And right now, we're close to $50 billion that we are spending on that war. That's a lot of money, and I'm wondering why it doesn't go to more people and to more infrastructures. It's also completely insane to me looking at the patterns of all these mystery fires that have taken place in many food processing plants. It also doesn't make sense to me that because of a war that is fought politically, why people on either side have to be hurt and why we would have wars in certain places that are the breadbasket of Europe and other places in the world. 
why would you have a war that would shut down supply chains to so many people? And why would you have a war that threatens to cut off natural gas to major areas of the planet? It doesn't seem to me that those leaders are actually thinking of the people. What they're very good at doing is dividing the people and making people take a side and not even think about the nuances. Now, of course, we have been so psychologically affected by all the information and misinformation, and I will say outright lies. Again, going beyond who is in power, there have been so many lies said to the human beings on this planet. And if someone's really, really concerned about healing and really concerned about their population having better health, that doesn't come from a medicine that is hurting some people. We know that health and healing also comes from spiritual well-being, from emotional well-being, from getting the nutrition that people really need. Now, why is it that so many farms are being cut off both in this country and beyond? And why is it that there's suddenly all these new viruses that are now affecting the animals being culled based on tests that we're not really sure if they're 100 percent correct. One thing to look at too is when we're given information, it's not just the information that we're given. We also have to look at the behaviors and people that are concerned about free speech and people that are concerned about the well-being and the the understanding of the power of their words, they would never let so much fear and division take place. They would care. A real leader would care about all, and they would find a common ground or find a balance. But what's been going on a long time is that corporate and financial interests are actually running this two-party paradigm system, two sides of the same coin. Dear listener, you may not agree with everything I say, and that is okay. It is so important to have debate, and it is so important to consider what someone else will say. provinces lead and give unvaccinated Canadians their rights back, maybe they will follow our international partners. We know that the Prime Minister values his Playboy image on the world stage more than anything else, as his travels and selfies prove, but our international partners are bewildered as to why the Canadian government is so reluctant to let life return to normal for all Canadians. Switzerland and Greece are removing all travel-related restrictions next week, and virtually no other country requires it for domestic travel for their citizens. So why won't this government follow the science? I've been thinking a lot about what happened in Canada and what those truckers did. If you go beyond the normal media that you are fed, that the algorithms feed you, or that you believe is so true. If you can just look at some of the trucker conferences, the press conferences. I'll talk to any level of government that can actually get a decision done. Okay, because I can see clearly, we can see clearly, the liberals don't want to talk to us. We want to talk to them. We will talk to them. They are the official government of Canada. 
but can you just come and meet us at a table? They were calm. They were collected. They were very clear of what they were asking for. And they were asking simply to sit down at the table with their political leader. And the behavior of their political leader and the money that was behind this political leader, the companies that were behind this political leader that were also a part of their cure and their medicine, there was billions of dollars involved in that and money made. And this leader that claims to care so much about the people, what did he do and what did most of the media do? They called them names. They called them not only names, they called them names that were the opposite of what they were saying and doing. They accused them of things that were the exact opposite, right? So there you can see the inversion. You can see that they're saying one thing and their behavior is another thing. What is so wrong with people coming together? What is wrong with bouncy castles? What is wrong with people saying, we want another way or we are asking to sit down with you at the table because what you've proposed is not working? A real leader would care about all and they would find a common ground or find a balance. And all of this ideology and control over what people say or don't say just shows that those leaders that are interested in controlling and not wanting to sit down at the table and not wanting to look at other people's opinions, it shows what side they're actually on. And that is not in a side of looking at the whole and trying to understand where other people are coming from. But if we also look at what's happening in other countries who already have very set social control systems with digitization, you're not allowed to have other opinions. And we've seen this pattern happen throughout history. What happens when things are digitized? And what happens when there are large organizations who are behind that, who don't have the same ethics of caring for a population or for understanding the value of free speech? A very close family member of mine was an immigrant, and he worked in service to this country. He believed so much. He was proud to be here and to be able to serve this country and to make it through college. I didn't know a lot about this family member because he was sworn to secrecy, which is what often happens when people start working on higher levels of the government. I know that he kept so many secrets and then he had to and that also protected us. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But right before he passed, he told me a few things. He couldn't go to the Vietnam War because he wasn't really good at shooting a gun. But he was highly intelligent. And so because of that and because of speaking a few languages, he was hired as what he said as a spook, as a spy. 
Now his partner knew nothing about it, and it was all kind of just the way that it was. They were stationed overseas, and they weren't living on the base. And his job at that point in the mid to late 60s was to spy on the enemies of the United States. At that time, he said there were three primary groups that he had to spy on. And what he did was he just dressed as a plain clothes civilian and would embed himself in these groups. He told me that there were three different categories. The first category, of course, was communists because it was the Cold War after all. And the second group was homosexuals which was kind of hard because some family members of his were gay, but he didn't question it. He was a dutiful person, and he believed in this country. And the third group of people were the anti-war protesters. It was during the Vietnam War, and even he realized that this war was pointless as he saw the body count and the drug addictions going up and up and up. Now his job was to embed himself in these communities and take pictures and write reports and turn that right back in to the intelligence agencies. He later was also involved in digitizing the government. It was also kind of secret, like we didn't really talk about it, and I remember always having access to technologies before they came out. I remember he did get some kind of big award at the Smithsonian, but I wasn't allowed to go and I didn't really understand it. Now with digitization, what happens is, well, everything is digitized and the system can be controlled and manipulated in ways that are a lot harder when it's in analog or when it's in material. It was later, me not even thinking that somehow I repeated that pattern. I had the opportunity as I worked in the analog world, yes, I'm, I'm that old. <laughs> I'm old in the sense that I worked in the media industry and in the film industry before it became digitized. And I, I loved cinema. I loved all kinds of movies. To me, it was a dream to learn about how movies were made, and it was all that I really cared about for many, many years. And while I was living in Europe, I was a part of a 15 million euro research and development project. And in this project, we were to look at what it meant to digitize the entire cinema industry. Now there, it was also very interesting, and I hadn't really thought about what it was like for this family member to be a part of that digitization, but I was a very fervent and passionate researcher. What did it mean to go digital? What did it mean to not have film and cameras? We didn't have to worry about things being developed and all of that. And it was sold to me in a way that I also believe that it was actually better for the environment because no longer would we have to use all those terrible chemicals. Everything would be digital. 
At that point in time, too, it was very clear in Europe that that Hollywood had actually most of the market in terms of the cinema, and there was a lot of questions about how each country could protect their cultural patrimony and not be forced to only show American films. It was the first time, I think, in the history of Hollywood where they decided, the six studios, to come together and to create standards for digital cinema distribution. It was sold as something that would be much more flexible. This digitization would be something that would allow theater owners, both large and small, the freedom to put different languages in all different kinds of cinema. But what I also started to realize was that within this digitization, there were new forms of control. And these forms of control were not necessarily regulated. People could come up with, uh, let's say, flexibility in how they played a film, but what was regulated were the systems of control through digitization, which you didn't have in the analog world. I also saw that the equipment that they were promoting on all levels was, although they said it was for the environment, I started to notice too that within all of these industries that were working with the digitization, there was something called planned obsolescence. And this is where, in order to make more money, there are different formats of technology that will be used for a certain amount of time. If people are old enough to remember, you had in the beginning cassettes, and then those cassettes went to DVDs or went to CD-ROMs, and then that went to different various digital formats. Now, what most people don't know, but what I've seen looking behind these curtains that shield us, is that many of these technologies were developed way in advance, and there were business plans that were used and executed, and as they say, deployed, to sell as much product as possible and then have, let's say, a change out so that people would have to continue to buy new formats and new kinds of machines. And that these plans, sadly, were made way in advance and then released to the public as if it was something that would make their lives easier. With cinema, it was before that, let's say, a projector would last 75 years. At that point in time, things were made to last a really long time. And in my lifetime, I've seen that, well, not only are things planned not to last a long time, it's, it's an economic decision, and it's actually worse for the environment in so many ways. For me, the world changed with the advent of smartphones. This, for me, was the biggest change in terms of what I saw in human behavior. And smartphones combined with social media and 24-hour access, as amazing as it is and how much content has been created, I don't really see it as something that made the world a better place. I actually see people 
almost hypnotized and young people not able to function without these machines. And if we add on how AI works and how marketing works, and if we think about with all of this digitization, there's very little regulation. So these companies like Twitter, like Facebook, like Instagram, and so many more, their money is not only made through advertising, it's through data collection. And this data collection is not something only used for commercial purposes. If you really want to research it, there's a couple of documentaries and more that talk about how, for example, like with the Cambridge Analytica experience, how so much of this data was used also to psychologically target populations. And since then, even the more things that are revealed, even when Edward Snowden revealed what the government was doing and how it was collecting data on every single citizen, nothing's changed. It's like we've just been hypnotized and somehow we don't care. We don't care that our private conversations are being recorded, that everything that we say and do, and that a lot of it is being weaponized against us. All you have to do is research the countries that do have right now social credit scores. And it is an incredibly hard and sad way for human beings to live. Your freedom doesn't exist unless it's within this system that is based on a set of morals that are not the morals of every single person and that it is based on how well you behave according to that system. And going even further than that, there are computers, quantum computers, computers that are being used to make decisions and make decisions about how people are governed and that test out different scenarios. We have AI at this point that could make a film, that could copy my voice, that could make a digital copy of me and it would seem like me. And yet there's no regulation. So evil is something that presents itself as good, but it is exactly the inverse. It says that it really cares for the people and that it really wants to help, but its behavior is the opposite. How can you say that you care about so many people, but you are also invested in things that may hurt people? Looking at the World Economic Forum and some of those leaders and what they're saying, saying that the human being is hackable and that it's okay to hack the human system and control the human system and control the body. Everyone should have the right to choose what they want for their bodies because there's no one body the same. So looking at this new digitization, whether it be the digitization of, of money or of passports are of all these things and that those at the top know how the technology works and they use the data and they sell the data. And in the end, 
It is for complete control of everything. That is not love. That is not care. That is evil. Now, we may not be able to change all these systems, but we can decide how we want to use them. And it's, at this point, impossible for me to fight against the system. What I've realized is that what we have to do is create parallel systems. We have to create ways of doing things that are not dependent on these systems of control and lies. It's not going to be done through Twitter or claiming that it's free speech or, or saying that someone is going to save us buying up companies. And it's all a diversion and it's all to divide and conquer and separate the people. So let's focus on love. Love is something that is an expansion. It is something that cares for the life around itself. It is something that has an understanding that even if two people don't agree, there is something that connects us. And what I do to another person affects myself and it affects the other person. Love is something that doesn't need to control or hack you or sell something to you or control you. Love is something that cares about your sovereignty and cares about the sovereignty of others and cares that a human being would be able to develop themselves without being controlled about what they say and without demonizing another person. What is going to help people survive is creating non-centralized systems that are not based on control and fear, but that is the power of the individual and it is the power of even small groups of people coming together to look for new ways of having sustenance and working together because I don't think it's going to happen with what we've seen with these control systems all over the world unless people start doing that. I don't know if you believe in prayer, but that's the one thing that seems pretty consistently empowering in my life. And so I'd like to say a prayer for this world and for all the people living in it and for all life on this planet. Dear God, I thank you for every day that I am alive. I thank you for every person that has come into my life and taught me. I thank you for the food and the water and everything that I have. I pray for this world and for all of the people who are suffering unnecessarily. I pray that there are those in power that are willing to stand up and expose and that there is a way that more of us can live a freer life. I pray that if everything becomes digitized, that there is a moral and ethical regulation of that, and that human beings do not become slaves, but they are set free. And I pray for every single listener and for all their families and for everyone, no matter what their political ideology is, 
or if they're just purely evil and power hungry. Yes, I still pray for them and all the enemies that have come and stood before me, tried to destroy me. I thank you for your strength, God. I thank you for the opportunity to continue living and expressing and wanting so much more for this world. Amen. Thanks for listening.